Hello. Ah, there we go. I think so. Cool. Let me get this set up here. Cool. Well, thank you for um, giving the opportunity to speak. Um, my background is in um, uh, computational and theoretical chemistry. And um, so basically, after I'd found God, um, after I did my master's degree in chemistry, I was faced with a pretty stark dilemma that science teaches you that um, evolution and that things were created Life was basically created from chemical reactions. If you bring all the ingredients for life together at the same time, um, give it the right conditions for millions of years, and all of a sudden you create life. <coughs> but um, after I discovered Christ, I found that, well, you can't have two things going on at one time. So Christ obviously um, said that the Bible says that there was a creator and that life was actually created and not from just random chemical reactions. So me being a scientist, and I love to explore numbers, I love to look at chemical reactions and things like that, I needed to delve deeper and actually find the truth. And so first off, before you know, we get into anything, there's one little thing that I'd like to say is that me being up here, I cannot prove to you that there is a God. That's a journey that you have to go to go through on your own. I can only present information that will hopefully sow some seeds into your heart that will lead you towards the truth. Okay, next slide, please. <clears throat> so the outline of my talk is that um, it's going to be from kind of like a chemistry perspective, um, and it's going to be going, talking a bit about evolution theory and mostly about the flaws associated with it. So much so that looking at it from a chemistry perspective, it's pretty impossible that life would actually occur from chemical reactions. Um, and mostly I'm going to be focusing on proteins and DNA, and evolutionists use that because all living things on Earth contain proteins and they also contain DNA. So my focus of the talk is going to be pretty much on that. Uh, evolutionists believe that if you've got proteins and if you've got DNA, those are the building blocks for life, so therefore life can come from that. Is it a two-way street? I'm going to touch a bit on that as well. And there's four major flaws that I looked at when, or that I discovered um, in life coming from chemical reactions. Uh, chemical stability, reactivity, selectivity, and then the last one which really throws a spanner in the works of evolution is chirality, or handedness of a molecule. And then thanks to, uh, I don't know where Nick's at in the audience, but he pointed me towards uh, this one video where I really wanted to quench my thirst on um, uh, understanding this a bit better, the 12 foundation stones of New Jerusalem. And there was some information in there that I did some research on, and well, it came out to be true. So, yeah, thanks for that, Cook, where you were at, and I'll be sharing that information with you as well. Just a little treat um, and a little satisfaction in my scientific curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> so, evolution theory. Uh, if you get um, all the ingredients together at the same time, you'd let them 
the building blocks for life. You let them build for millions of years, you end up with life. Now, I'll tell you what, if I woke up the next morning and I saw that beaker with a face and um, eyes looking at me, I'd probably need to eat this microphone and I'd be a stark believer of um, evolution theory. But, <coughs> as we all know, that's probably not going to be the case. Actually, it's very unlikely it's not going to be the case. So, um, Charles Darwin was basically the um, original founder of uh, evolution theory, and then um, Alfred Russell Wallace um, later on basically discussed that life was formed from primordial soup, and that um, if you get the building blocks of life together, that you'll eventually form life. Well, they basically assumed that amino acids and nucleotides were created from random chemical reactions. So we got all the different um, components, if you will, these small molecules kind of coming together, random chemical reactions, to build amino acids and nucleotides. Um, once you make these, amino acids randomly reacted to make proteins, and nucleotides randomly reacted to make DNA. Uh, if given enough time, life can be generated from these chemical reactions, and a nice scientific word for you is spontaneous generation. So that's basically what they're proposing is that spontaneous generation occurs from chemical reactions. Well, there's some significant flaws in that. <coughs> in that, uh, basically, chemical reactions cannot create life. Uh, since the 17th century, there's been published over 50 million uh, scientific journals, or scientific articles in journals, where not a single one of them actually uh, discusses uh, chemical reactions producing life or spontaneous generation. We know it's common sense that life creates life. Um, in my years as, as a chemist, uh, I've done many different chemical reactions and not a single one have actually produced life. There are some research groups around the world that are trying to do it. They've got all the ingredients together. They've got these very specific and accurate um, uh, conditions for producing life in their minds, but yet they still haven't been able to generate a single uh, protein, a single strand of DNA from all of these ingredients, again, in the very precise conditions to be able to create life. Um, and so you're probably wondering, I have a... Uh, stack of bread and a mouse on there, is that back in the 17th century, they actually believed that uh, mice came from breadcrumbs and soiled, uh, what was it, soiled um, shirts. So there was a, um, it sounds funny now, but back then they actually did believe that. Um, in the 17th century, there was this a researcher called, now I apologize if I absolutely mess up this person's name, Jean-Baptiste van Helmont. And he did some experiments, and basically his hypothesis was that, well, if you leave out breadcrumbs and you leave soiled shirts, particularly shirts that have been stained with, with um, like meat or, or um, beer or wine, that you would wake up the next day, you would have hole in your shirts, or holes in your shirt, and then your breadcrumbs would be gone. And if given enough time, you would have an infestation of mice. So it's only fair to conclude that that would, that mice come from those things. But believe it or not, people actually did believe in this, and that it wasn't until a bit later where they actually said, "Well, no, actually, if you're leaving food and soiled shirts on the table, 
that the mice are going to find that they're going to start breeding and you're going to have an infestation of mice. But that, I mean, that, that's the 17th century, so 1600s, not really all that long ago. The amount of advancements that we've made in science since then is astounding. Um, research shows now that every year there's about 2.5 million scientific publications that are made each year. So that's huge compared to back in the 17th century. We've only had a total of 50 million, so it's increasing exponentially. And that's awesome. I'm excited about that because that starts showing more and more flaws in evolution theory that where did life come from? And it shows, in my opinion, more of God's glory that you know, things were actually created. But let's not take my word for it. Let's delve into some actual things. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so a little bit of background. Uh, DNA is a complex molecule that's present in all living things. This is the part where most of my students, when I was teaching, they would kind of fall asleep. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a polymer of nucleotides, and there are billions of them in a DNA molecule. A DNA molecule is so complex that we still, after all the research, we cannot map out the entire genome of the human DNA. It's that complicated, that complex. So to assume that this was actually made from a random process without any control, any, you know, and no chemist sitting there and you know, controlling things and building it up, it's, it's pretty small. Um, the ordering of the nucleotides is also very precise. And again, this has been scientifically shown that if you pull out one of the uh, nucleotides and you replace it, that's called a, um, a mutation, or it's also called, um, yeah, but basically it's a mutation, that the DNA that you have now no longer functions the way it's designed to do and the cell dies, or you end up with um, a mutated cell. And as we know, mutated cells can cause cancer, they can cause some really nasty things. So as we see, that's very precise. It's not random whatsoever. And a bit about proteins. <coughs> uh, proteins are long polymer chains of amino acids. Typically, they're on the order of about 100 to 1,000, a couple of thousand um, amino acids that are actually in the protein. The smallest ones that um, we're actually able to see in living organisms is about 20. So living organisms usually produce amino or, um, proteins of about 20 amino acids or 20 residues. So the reason why I'm saying that is later on I'll be using that as for some calculations and numbers. Just like uh, DNA... Um, the amino acid sequences and proteins are also very precise. Again, you pull out just one. That's one out of a thousand, one out of ten thousand, one out of a couple of hundreds. You pull one out, you put another one in, the DNA usually denatures, it falls apart, and it's no longer able to perform its function. So again, it's not random, it's very precise. And evolutionists argue that if you mix them all together, you get the building blocks, you produce life. Well, I, I argue that DNA and proteins are <clears throat> needed to preserve life. Absolutely, you need the proteins in your body to be able to make new cells and stuff like that. You need the DNA to provide instructions for your cells um, on what it needs to do, and it gives its identity. But they're not the source of life. You've got organisms, for example, I mean, if you have a dead organism, a dead organism contains all of the building blocks for life. They've got DNA, they've got proteins, They've got all of that as well, but they're not alive. 
speaking from a chemistry perspective, there's no reason why that dead organism should be dead. It has to be alive chemically speaking, but it's not. So life has to create life. And another proven scientific fact, there are plenty of research articles on that. You mix DNA, you mix it with proteins, you put it in absolute perfect conditions that it would hopefully create life, and it doesn't do anything. It just floats around in a beaker. <laughs> Next slide, please. So now I'm going to target some of, the, um, some of the flaws of life from chemicals. Being a chemist, I like to look at the small and kind of build up from there. Look at the fundamentals. So those who know about chemistry, I'm a fundamental chemist. So I like to look at the little bits and use some mathematics and look at some numbers with it as well. So the first fall of evolution is chemical stability. So we, we're going to assume that amino acids will react with each other and that they'll start building proteins one right after the other. They're also assuming that nucleotides, well, they're made from random chemical reactions um, and that they start building up uh, molecules of DNA or portions of DNA by just reacting with each other. Well, from a chemistry perspective, that does, it just doesn't happen that way. Because in order for chemical reactions to react, you have to activate it. So and molecules need to be activated in order to react. And this needs to be done under very, very specific and controlled conditions. If it's not controlled, you get a whole bunch of byproducts. The reaction might not react, and you end up wasting several hours of, of your time trying to do a chemical reaction. Amino acids and nucleotides, you add them to water. They're, they exist. They're around. You add them to water, you put them in a solution, they don't spontaneously react. They're incredibly stable. You add strong acid or strong base, so you add something that's corrosive to it to try to get it to react. Nothing. It doesn't, they don't react by themselves on their own without being activated first. Now, here's the kicker to um, the whole idea of life was created in primordial soup. In order to activate, for in particular, amino acids, this needs to be done without water. Because if you try to activate these with water, um, the chemical reaction does not work. And it actually breaks down. And that's because in order to form a peptide bond, you actually produce water. So if you're trying to use water to make a peptide bond, it doesn't work. So how can these molecules react in a primordial soup, which obviously would contain water, um, to be able to make proteins if you, if water will actually stop that from happening. Uh, yep. So why is it that when they discover what might be water, when they see these probes as well as They're making a link that life is what, or water is what creates life. Um, that's a really, really big assumption. They're taking what they can, what we can see on Earth. We've got plenty of, plenty of water. Um, human beings, for example, are I think 75, 80 percent water. Um, they're taking what we can see on Earth, and we're using a hypothesis to say what that because there's life here, because there's water here, there must be life over there. Um, that's the yeah. They're just hypothesizing that that could be the case. Yeah, they're making a guess, absolutely. Uh, cool, next slide, please. So the next flaw of evolution is chemical reactivity, and this deals with how fast um, molecules react. 
Uh, it's known in chemistry quite well that the more reactive a molecule is, the faster it will react. Um, so we, it would be likely to assume that well, we've got a whole bunch of amino acids, 20 amino acids, and they should, if we're going to be making proteins, they should react in order. Most reactive starts building the chain, followed by next, followed by next, followed by next. Again, that's, that's uh, basic chemistry right there. However, if we actually look at the proteins themselves, the order of reactivity doesn't match the structure of the proteins. So that kind of throws that out of the water. Um, they're very specifically ordered. The ordering of the amino acids, residues, and the proteins doesn't match their chemical reactivity. Next slide, please. Um, yeah, there's just an example of it uh, in case I got a bit too scientific for you. So if we got, um, suppose the reactivity, so we got A, B, and C, um, we would expect that A to react first, followed by B, followed by C. Um, then it would add on to the chain. It would be a chain, which I called it X. It would just be A, B, C. But as I said previously, this doesn't occur. Um, there, are no, there is no specific pattern. Uh, this would obviously cause a pattern in uh, proteins, and this doesn't work. And another thing is that the reactivity of amino acids are roughly the same. They're not exactly the same, but they're roughly the same. So naturally, we would expect, well, if they're all the same, we would expect a random assortment of amino acids in um, proteins, because they all have the same chemical reactivity. Again, it just doesn't work that way. Next slide, please. <coughs> um, the next flaw that, um, that I researched was the chemical selectivity. So this deals with where uh, the molecules react. Amino acids are really, really cool molecules in that they can react on both sides, either the amino side or the amine side or the carboxylic acid side. So there's a little example that I showed on the screen of um, glycine reacting with alanine. So because they can react on both sides, you get two products that are two possible products that are made for every, um, in this case, for two amino acids. So if you have three amino acids, you get a total of nine possibilities. You got four amino acids, you got a total of 64 possibilities. So there are a total of 20 amino acids. So we can kind of think, well, number of possibilities are starting to get pretty high. They increase exponentially. Uh, oh yeah, before I go on to the next slide. Uh, again, <clears throat> oh yeah, you can go on to that slide, that's fine. Um, basically, if we were created from chemical, you know, if, if proteins and stuff were created from random chemical reactions, in our bodies we would have parts of our proteins that contain inert or in inactive um, amino acids because they would have to have been, been built by randomness. And again, it's very specific. So yeah, let's go. Let's go on to some chances. This is a this is a slide that I really really enjoyed making, um, <laughs> just because it really puts things in perspective. <coughs> no, mind you, this is the worst case scenario. Um, I'll give you so I'll give you basically the best case scenario, but it'll put things into perspective as well. Uh, the smallest known protein is uh, contains forty four amino acids in humans. Uh, this is actually 
uh, a residue or, part, or it's a product of a chemical reaction um, that separates two different proteins. So let's start with 44 amino acids. Um, so the chances of uh, attaining this protein, so it's the number of amino acids raised to the power of number of peptide bonds. So it would be 44 to the power of 43, or one in that absolutely large number. Now, let's put this into perspective. Uh, let's suppose that we had one centimeter cube, so about, it'd be about the size of, I don't know, a sugar cube. That would be, well, number one, that would be quite a lot of sugar cubes. Number two, uh, the, <laughs> the government would love to sugar tax that because they would <laughs> get an extremely large amount of revenue, and they might actually be able to fix the infrastructure, and I'll clean with that money, but anyway. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So we have that many uh, sugar cubes. Let's suppose we take one of those, and let's suppose that all of them are just plain white sugar cubes. The other one will just dye red. So that's your one in that number of chance of actually getting the correct molecule out of all those possibilities of randomly reacting all of the amino acids together. Now, I, had to, I looked it up. Um, the volume of the Earth is about two times... 10 to the power of 20, 21 uh, cubic centimeters. <clears throat> so I worked it out. Um, if we had this many sugar cubes, and we're looking at the volume of the Earth, this is actually replacing Earth with sugar cubes, <laughs> we would have 4.3 times 10 to the 43rd power Earths. So that's 43 with 42 zeros after it. That's how many Earths that we would fill up with these sugar cubes. <laughs> to put it into another perspective... Um, that a galaxy has about 100 billion stars. So we would be filling up about one or two times 10 to the power of 20 galaxies of Earths. Each one of those Earths filled with sugar cubes. So the chances of actually getting that correct molecule out of all of those possible combinations would be first going to the correct galaxy, then picking the correct Earth, Diving into the earth, grabbing that one red sugar molecule, one red uh, sugar cube, and then saying, "Yeah, I got it." <laughs> but there's also some assumptions that um, that they don't really talk about in uh, evolution theory. Is that these assumptions also assume that this is done without any controlling mechanism? So there are no chemists around to control the reaction conditions at that time. Uh, we also assume that the required concentrations of amino acids, they're all there. So we needed to actually be able to wait in order for that reaction to occur. Everything's there, all in per perfect conditions for millions of years without any change in climate, without uh, any natural disasters, um, all that things to occur. So, yeah, and that there's no competing reactions. So the re competing reactions basically means that as you're building up this chain, so out of one out of those are the correct chain as you're building it up. Well, in order for the correct molecules to actually find that chain to build onto it, it becomes less and less because you've got all these other side products that are floating around that kind of clog it up. So I was looking at that and I was like, there's probably going to be somebody there that's going to be thinking, well, there's only 20 amino acids, so you've got 44. <coughs> and that's a fair assumption. So let's look at that. So let's look at 20 amino acids. I don't have the slide for that, but I calculated already. I've got some notes here. So let's suppose that we're just using 20 amino acids. 
And like I said previously, that the, in any living organism, the shortest protein is usually around 20, 20 amino acids long. So we'd have 20 to the power of 20. Or that would be, um, it's 1 in 2 times 10 to the power of 44. So if we look at just that, um, or sorry, go back to here. So yeah, I had my notes a bit off. Um, so let's basically look at just 20 amino acids to the power of um, 43. So that would make 2 to the power of 44, uh, 1 and 2 to the power of 44. So at that point, we would have to choose a sugar cube in, I think like it was like 10 galaxies or something. So we're, we're getting a bit better. But now let's look at just at um, the ones that we found, you know, the shortest protein that's found in any living organism that they discovered that um, contains 20 amino acids total. That would be one or two to the power of 20. So now we're narrowing it down. So you only have to choose one red cube and you fill up only 90% of an earth with uh, sugar cubes and you throw that red one in there and you can choose it. So it's a bit better, but you've got much better chances of winning the lottery. Much, much better chances. Uh, next slide, please. So this just kind of summarizes up uh, chemical selectivity in that they say that if we have random reactions, we would, ha nest we would have um, random uh, amino acids in our proteins. We would have random um, structures in our DNA. There would just be extra parts that our body doesn't use, which doesn't exist. Um, Removal and changing just one amino acid or nucleotide in DNA, you completely ruin the um, completely ruin it, and it no longer functions as it's as it should. And honestly, all of these numbers it points towards something which was specifically designed. Um, you can't just have a whole bunch of random things happening together and expect that this to actually occur. And it's been shown scientifically this doesn't occur. Um, the numbers and stuff, they back it up. So for me personally, this really, really um, helped to uh, form a better foundation for my faith. Because when I first became a Christian, I was like, I've got two different possibilities here. And so when I went on my journey, these are the kinds of things that I discovered. Um, but if that didn't can help to convince you even more, let's look at something else that will. Uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> chirality. I, yeah, I really enjoy chirality um, because that really firms things up. So um, 19 of the 20 amino acids uh, have what's called an enantiomer or a mirror image of itself. And that's just because the carbon is asymmetrical. Um, it has a point of asymmetry. So up on the screen, you've got alanine and its mirror image. <clears throat> and you're like, well, they're bonded the same way. What, who cares? What is it about alanine? What is it about the mirror image? Um, I quite like to, to um, give this example, is that back in the 1950s and 60s, some of you might know about this, um, there was, a, um, there was a, a medication or a drug that they used to help to treat uh, morning sickness. It was called thalidomide. Um, one mirror image, or the L form of thalidomide, uh, cured or helped deal with morning sickness. 
The D, which is a it's bonded the same way, but it's a mirror image of itself, calls birth defects. So one form of it uh, helped with morning sickness. The mirror image calls birth defects, and they had a series of cases of birth defects from babies born in the 1960s. So this is pretty important stuff. They're, com they're two completely different molecules. So it's no longer 20 possible structured amino acids. It's now 39. And the reason why he's you know, 39 is that because scientists are assuming that um, amino acids are just randomly made from chemical reactions. But if you do that, you always get a 50-50 mixture, scientifically proven. You always get a 50-50 mixture of the right-handed and the left-handed. So you've got half the material to work with. But yet, in all living species, only the L form of the amino acid is actually used. So you take a look at that, then that number, that number that showed up on the first slide, or the first, yeah, a few slides ago, actually looks a bit more reasonable. So pick a cube out of billions of galaxies. <clears throat> and <coughs> to make it even more interesting, is that when we look at just the sugars that are in the body, the D form of the sugars are the only ones that are present in all living organisms in the world. So L amino acids and the D form of sugars are the only ones that are used in living organisms. For me, that sounds like something was designed. We can't even do these things in the chemistry laboratory. We've got some of the best scientific equipment to be able to uh, create these sorts of things and we're unable to do it. So how can we expect that random chemical reactions would make that? Ah, here we go, little treat right there. Let's suppose that we're Mr. and Miss Lucky. We beat all the odds, we went to the correct galaxy, went to the um, uh, correct Earth, we got it, we got our gold star. Well, number one, I should ask whoever that person is to give me the lottery numbers for like the next 10 years because they're really, really lucky. Um, <clears throat> If we beat all the odds, we successfully made DNA from random chemical reactions, we successfully made a protein from random chemical reactions, well, there's a problem. Um, the half-life of DNA is 520 years, so that's the time that takes for half of it to break down. We've already spent millions of years creating DNA, so better get a move on to create the rest of that organism. The longest lasting protein, which is known as collagen, has a half-life of 117 years. So they really better get a move on and start creating that, um, the rest of that organism. <clears throat> Next slide, please. So I just want to add this bit of scripture right here because this is what really spoke to me um, when I was doing my research back a number of years ago and actually looking at this sort of thing. As is, for since, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what, from what has been made so that people were without excuse. And as a scientist, I always, I always believe that if something is true, there will be evidence of something being true. Just like if something is false, there will be evidence of where it's flawed. It takes time to be able to discover these things. We're, ex we're increasing our scientific knowledge ex ex exponentially. And I'm excited because all of this starts pointing towards a creator. The more they discover, the more they realize that there's flaws in things. And of course, as scientists, they don't want to 
believe that there's a creator. So they kind of like, oh, we'll just add a little bit of this to it, make it a bit more precise. But when you do something like that, you're shooting yourself in your foot, basically. And last but not least, the special treat. Next slide, please. So again, thanks for Nick for this. Um, the 12 foundation stones in New Jerusalem. <clears throat> so in Revelation 21, 19 through 20, I apologize with the way, I see, I can pronounce these scientific terms and stuff like that really well, but I struggle with the names of gemstones. <laughs> so I apologize if I absolutely butcher the names of these. Um, anyway, the wall of the city w- was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, I think it's pronounced that way, and the twelfth amethyst. So there's a little picture up there of the different uh, gemstones. Cool. Where am I going to be going with this? Next slide, please. <clears throat> and in Revelation uh, 4, 3, it says that a rainbow shone like an emerald encircled on the throne, or in, encircled the throne. Well, it wasn't until uh, later on that we discovered a uh, property of materials called anisotropy. And the 12 foundation stones are anisotropic gems. So anisotropy, it's a nice little scientific term that basically means that um, the physical property of the material changes depending on where it's observed. The best example that I could give, uh, particularly for people who are carpenters, is that you can either go with the, with the grain of the wood or against the grain of the wood. That would be like a, an easy example of an isotropy. You can either go for or against the grain. It wasn't until the 19th century that we actually discovered a process in which we can refine light or in this case, it's called plain polarized light. <clears throat> Anybody who's ever had sunglasses that were polarized, you notice that when you put it on, all the glare disappears and you can see things really sharply. And all you're doing is you're creating plain polarized light that your eye can see. So it filters out all the static light and then it, it basically allows light only in one plane to travel. And you can use another filter as well, so you can do cross-polarization to filter out the light even further, just to remove even, fur- even more scattered light. Well, it turns out that this purified light, if you will, um, becomes refracted in anisotropic gems um, and shows as a spectrum or rainbow of colors. Um, So gemstones without anisotropic structures don't allow cross-polarized light through. They show as gray or black. So I was like, wow. They say that, you know, they chose these gemstones very, very specifically. It's chosen very specifically. And it says that a rainbow encircled the throne. So how was it back thousands of years ago that they knew about something like this? Uh, Next slide, please. And so there's there's a picture of um, uh, some of the gemstones um, when they shine under plain polarized light. So you see that they form a rainbow of colors. And other um, non-anisotropic gemstones, um, they're shown as like gray or black. So me, I'm a numbers person. What are the chances? Give me the odds. So they're a bit better than picking a a square out of the universe or picking a sugar cube out of the universe. Um, So chances of randomly guessing 12 out of the 28 gemstones that were considered gemstones at the time, about one in a thousand. 
but those gemstones that they chose weren't the most precious. If you're thinking, if you think about, you know, like, cool, I'm going to, a person would be like, cool, I'm going to write, um, what, is, what is heaven going to look like? What is a new Jerusalem going to look like? I think the first thing that probably come to my mind is we're going to want some really expensive gemstones there. <laughs> if we take into account uh, the cost of these gemstones or the value of these gemstones, the chances are much greater than one in a thousand because those ones which were chosen weren't the most expensive or the most valuable. So when I saw that and then I researched it, I was like, wow, that really, really helped to, for me personally, um, increase my faith. Because, I mean, I'll be a fresh, frank, and honest. I've got lots of questions and I'm seeking answers and things like, things like that. And um, so that's pretty much where I'm at with my journey that... You know, I'm not 100% there yet. As a scientist, I love to. I love these sorts of things. I love ex- asking questions. I love exploring. Um, and I hope that this talk has um, showed a bit of, uh, for one thing, flaws in uh, evolution theory. Give you some chances and some actual concrete numbers to show that well, this is very, very flawed. And I hope that you know some so- seeds were sown onto your hearts and maybe give you something to think about. Uh, next time you flip on the TV and have somebody saying, well, the earth was formed this way, or, you know, random chemical reactions, primordial soup, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak here, and I thank you for allowing me to share. Yeah. I think it's a